is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories that touch on every part of life. And one theme that cuts across all of them is innovation. And today we're joined by Tim Harford, author of a great book entitled 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy. And we're going to dig into a few of those inventions now. Tim, let's start off with the story of the plow. You said it ultimately made our modern economy possible. How is that? Well, it's a wonderful example of how technology has profound effects on society. We think about technologies as solving problems. So with the plow, what's the problem? I want to grow crops. Uh, The soil's not very fertile. I need to break up the surface of the soil. So I I invent the plow. But of course, that's just the beginning. Uh, Then all the social changes begin. So with the case of the plow, it created uh, a surplus. It created a harvest that you could store somewhere at the the end of the year, uh, which meant uh, you had an incentive to form up in big gangs. These days we call them armies and go and take the grain in someone else's barn. Um, it meant that you could support uh, a, uh, an elite, um, people who thought, uh, who planned, bureaucrats, accountants, priests. Uh, it, it meant you could support cities. And with cities, of course, comes the whole of civilization. So uh, you could really say this is where the whole thing started, whether, whether you like it or not, with the plow. And whether you like it or not is true, because some people don't like it, and lots of people do. Let's talk about barbed wire. You say this, there was a reason that American farmers were so hungry for barbed wire. A few years earlier, in 1862, President Abraham Lincoln had signed the Homestead Act. Talk about that. So that act said... Anybody who wants to move to the, to the West, to the Midwest, and to put up a fence and to farm some land for five years, um, men, women, freed slaves, anyone who, who wants to do that, that land will be theirs at the end of a few years. So it seems like a huge opportunity. The only trouble is when these new settlers get to the, the great American prairie, they realize there is no wood, or certainly there's not enough wood to spare putting up miles and miles of fences. And so if they want to claim land, uh, and in particular to keep off these tough longhorn cattle from trampling all over the place, they need a source of fencing. So this is one of those situations, sometimes people invent things and they never know what, what it's going to be used for. So the classic is the laser the laser's invented, and it's a solution looking for a problem. Complete op- opposite with barbed wire. Everybody knew what the problem was. It's how do we make inexpensive fencing that doesn't require a lot of wood? And there were huge efforts. Lots and lots of patents for different fencing techniques emerged from the, the American Midwest at the time. Lots of people trying to solve the problem. Uh, the American government issuing reports saying, We need fencing material. And then about 10 years later, J.F. Glidden of DeKalb, Illinois, produces this patent for this technology. And it it is the first recognizably modern barbed wire where you you have a little twist. You have two two pieces of wire together. You twist one around the other uh, in order to keep these barbs secure so they don't slide up and down the wire. And that's really barbed wire as we know it even today and it was immediately a sensational hit so within a few years 
um, the the factories of of Glidden and his associates were producing over two hundred and fifty thousand miles of barbed wire each year. Uh, but as with the plough, it it created winners and it created losers. It completely reshaped the American landscape, and it was just one of those way things where the president Abraham Lincoln had granted people property rights, and yet those property rights are really no good unless there's some practical technology for defending the property rights, and it was barbed wire. Let's talk about Google search. That's number five in your book. And by the way, we're talking to Tim Harford, his latest book, 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy, Google Search. Well, it would be impossible to leave it out, wouldn't it? it it's bec- I was trying to describe to my wife the other day, I was using a search engine on um, a newspaper website, and it, it wasn't working very well. Uh, and I was saying, oh, Google works so well. This search engine's so bad, I can't Google anything. So even when I was trying to describe the process of searching for something not using Google, I was still using the verb to Google. So it's, it's just... Um, it's just transformed the way that we access the internet, uh, that we access the World Wide Web. I'm old enough to remember the world before Google and the internet before Google. And you, you would discuss strategies for how to find things. So you would say, oh, if, um, if you know, for example, that a particular person has been working on a problem and you want to find some information, if you search for their name, that might help because... It's completely useless to search for an actual phrase or a bit of content. That's never going to work. But maybe if you search for someone's name. When Google came along, suddenly you would type stuff into the search bar and you would actually find it. And that that has been completely transformative. And, of course, it continues to, to reshape the economy because now it's become more and more local. These search engines, they're on our phones. Um, you're, you're, so you're... Attention is being directed. You, you want to search for a place to have a drink nearby. Um, you, you've been locked out of your house. You need to find a locksmith. Google is trying to solve these problems, sometimes with great success, sometimes not. And enormous amounts of, info, uh, of uh, effort are devoted to where you come on that Google search ranking. If you're on page three of the Google search ranking, you're absolutely nowhere. So it, it's, it, it's an insight into the way that... Um, a particular technology can unlock a whole world of information out there. And you've been listening to Tim Harford, author of 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and hear all that we do as it relates to authors. And we've done a good 60 interviews with some of the best writers in this country, everyone from David Mamet to, of course, the great David McCullough. Tim Harford, author of 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy, here on Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from sports to arts and from business to history. And this story, well, it's the latter. It's history. In the nation's capital, the sun glitters on stone monuments to our first president, George Washington, and our third, Thomas Jefferson. John Adams, the second president of the United States, was every bit as brave as the former and as brilliant as the latter, but there is no such monument for him. Yet no one, not even Washington or Jefferson, did as much to convince the colonies to break from England. Perhaps this is fitting because Stone is cold and he was anything but. Alas, we must see that the United States alone serves as the proper living monument to this intense, cranky, warm heart on his sleeve founding father. What we are about to do now is precise. Instead of telling the all-encompassing story of John Adams, we are going to dial it in on one specific moment in his life, one that best captures this man's humanity and ideals more than any other. And as we will soon learn, Adams himself will agree with our selection. Here to give us a quick overarching Reader's Digest-like version of Adams is none other than author and historian David McCullough, the man who's written the definitive biography of John Adams, the book in which HBO based its 2008 award-winning miniseries. Here's McCullough answering the question, what event most personified the life and character of John Adams? I think it's the his defense of the uh, British soldiers in the Boston Massacre trial. That's where you see what that man's made of. Here was a man who was on the political rise. He was brilliant. He was well-read. He was tenacious. He was a very skillful practicing lawyer and young still. And then the soldiers were captured and they were everybody in the whole Commonwealth were looking forward to having them executed. But they had to be represented in the trial and no one would represent them. No one would defend them. And Adam said, if we really believe that everybody deserves uh, legal defense in a trial, we better live up to what we say we believe. I'll defend them. And he did so certain that it was going to ruin any ambitions he had to play a part. And he had a terrific wife. He's the only founding father. Most people don't know this, but I think it's so important. The only founding father who never owned a slave as a matter of principle. And his wife felt the same way. She saw that slavery was a sin, evil, unjust, un-American. And they never changed in that point of view whatsoever. Let's now take a deep dive into the story of John Adams and his legendary defense of the British soldiers at the 1770 trial of the Boston Massacre. Here's Greg Henry. It takes slightly more than four decades from the first rumblings of discontent for the 13 loosely aligned colonies comprising New England to be transformed into one of the largest and most prosperous nations on earth. It starts with a simple idea that all men deserve to be treated equally and becomes the great experiment that will change the world. 
But before the anger of colonial Americans boils over into the most epic of revolutions, it begins as a daily struggle. In all 13 colonies under British rule, at the epicenter of the struggle is the seaport city of Boston. By 1760, 130 years after being founded by the Puritans, Boston is thriving. While in theory, its commerce is regulated by the British trade laws, in fact, these laws are rarely enforced. That changes in 1761 with England's economy struggling thanks to the 10,000 British troops protecting their American colonies from the French. Here's historian Andrew O'Shaughnessy and screenwriter of the 2008 HBO miniseries John Adams, Kirk Ellis. The reason that they taxed America was because of the French and Indian War. It so bankrupted the British Treasury that there had to be ways in which they could make up for this lost revenue, and they decided to tax the colonies. But, as they've always done, Americans ignore the taxes. So Britain takes action. New tax laws and anti-smuggling searches turn revenue collection into combative encounters. Here's historian Andrew Nelson. And this includes something called the Writs of Assistance, which is essentially a warrant where the British can search anyone's property freely. The British Army is no longer in America to protect colonists. It has become an occupying force. Along with invasive laws allowing search and seizure, England responds with the Stamp Act of 1765, a broad tax targeting every American colonist. The Stamp Act required that all official correspondence from newspapers to documentation, even playing cards, had to be produced on paper that bore an official stamp purchased from a customs agent. Even though it isn't described as a tax, it's of course a tax. And this leads to opposition. When most people think of the Founding Fathers, they envision wig-wearing politicians debating on the floor of some legislative body. But they in fact did their organizing in a bar, a tavern in Boston called the Green Dragon. The Boston Tea Party was planned here, and Paul Revere was sent from the Green Dragon to Lexington on his famous ride. It is here where their fight begins. Not yet for independence, but for the equal treatment under the law as the British citizens they believe they are. Behind the power of these laws, English customs agents begin ransacking homes and businesses. A group of patriots formed to fight British oppression, most notably the Stamp Act. They call themselves the Sons of Liberty. Sons of Liberty is an association of men who are looking to prompt situations that will lead to a disturbance that will force the attention of the Crown. The Sons of Liberty weren't just in Boston. They were very quickly organized and strewn throughout the original 13 colonies. The founder of what could be called General of the Sons of Liberty is John Adams' cousin, 43-year-old Samuel Adams. Here's colonial historian Marvin Kitman. Sam Adams was a real rebel with a cause, and the reason for it was in his personal life. He had been a failure in everything that he did until the revolution. 
His father gave him a lot of money to start a business. He lost all the money. He's one of these people who become obsessed with a cause and just put their personal life aside. If Sam Adams is the general of the Sons of Liberty, his colonels are John Hancock, the wealthiest man in Boston and the second wealthiest in the colonies, and goldsmith Paul Revere. Legend relegates Revere as a mere lookout who shouts from the top of a horse. But Paul Revere is both a salesman and a strategist, a multi-talented patriot who organizes tough men into a force for liberty. As the atmosphere in Boston turns incendiary, Paul Revere leads something of a guerrilla army that uses tactics of fear and violence intent on intimidating the king's tax collectors out of existence. What is known as the Stamp Act riots spread quickly throughout the 13 colonies. Here's historian extraordinaire Tony Williams. They were tearing down the stamp collectors' homes. They were burning these customs officials and the royal governor in effigy. And so there's a great deal of popular enthusiasm and even violence. The Stamp Act riots renders the man enforcing British rule in Massachusetts, Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson, powerless to collect taxes. With no colonial taxes being collected, the British Parliament is in a state of panic. Here's historian David Eisenbach. You have to remember at Parliament, they're dealing with an empire that is stretching all around the world. If they allow the abuse of tax collectors in Boston, that would encourage lawlessness all around. They decided we've got to make an example by putting more troops in Boston to kind of clamp down on the troublemakers. And what a story. And when we come back, this story setting up, well, like a showdown, like high noon. And we're putting you where we always put you, right there on the streets, in the context, in the history itself. When we come back, more of John Adams' story more of the story of the Boston Massacre trial and the circumstances that brought us there. John Adams' story here on Our American Stories. American stories, and we return where we last left off. Boston is under military occupation by the British troops trying to clamp down on colonial troublemakers. Here's Greg Hengler. Oh, there's no turning back for me. England dispatches two military regiments to Massachusetts from New York to keep order, adding fuel to the fire. Boston is now under military occupation. There's no turning back now. In 1768, four more regiments sailed from England to Boston. By 1770, 2,000 British troops occupied this city of 15,000. For Paul Revere, the occupation of British military presents an opportunity. 
he creates a propaganda piece he calls Landing of the Troops. As it travels throughout the colonies, so does the fear of military occupation. With a British army camp in the center of their city, Bostonians have a constant reminder of their own repression, while rank-and-file British soldiers start to wonder, who has it worse? Here's historians H.W. Brands, Andrew Nelson, and Denver Brunsman. These British soldiers are a long way from home, young men who are frightened. Most of them have hardly the slightest idea of what the political debate is. They're told by their officers, you need to keep the peace. For many of the soldiers arriving, America had been a faraway place that you read about in the newspaper. But when they get there, they see what all the fuss was about. This really is a suggestion of a much better life than America. So desertion becomes a serious problem. One hallmark of a professional army at this time is a high state of discipline, physical, you know, corporal punishment for various crimes. And the punishment of choice was the lash. Punishment for desertion could bring up to 250 lashes. Contrary to popular history, the derogatory term of lobsterback for British soldiers doesn't have anything to do with the red coats they wear. The term comes from the welts and the scars many men have on their backs from being whipped. The flame that will ignite the American Revolution is lit on Thursday morning, February 22, 1770, when, according to the Boston Gazette, a barbarous murder was committed on the body of a young lad of about 11 years of age. Christopher Sider is a young rebel in a Sons of Liberty offshoot group known as the Liberty Boys. So Sam Adams' idea to protest the taxes is to get all of the colonies together to join in on a boycott against English merchants. The Sons of Liberty proclaims that no British goods will be sold. Not everybody adheres to that boycott. Samuel Adams and the Sons of Liberty are not above marking that place with manure on the door. They're not above breaking the windows of that place. That dark morning, Cider and a crowd of 60 young men marched defiantly through Boston's cobblestone streets with a cart overflowing with rotten fruit used to mark the windows of those merchants who refused to respect the boycott of all British goods. These British sympathizers are known as loyalists or Tories. Walking down the street, the mob sees Ebenezer Richardson, who was an informant to the customs house about uh, various merchants who were not paying their taxes. Get up! Stopping in front of Ebenezer Richardson's house, the young men begin throwing rubbish into his yard. The rubbish is thrown back by Richardson's wife, Kezia. But soon, rocks are hurled and the Richardsons retreat into their secure home. As the intensity grows, windows are shattered and an egg hits Kezia. Richardson grabs his musket loaded with swan shot and stands defiantly musket high at his second story window. He fires once. It is intended to be a warning, he later swears, but Christopher Sider is hit in his chest and abdomen by 11 pieces of shot the size of large peas. One of our Liberty Boys. Most people believe the Revolutionary War is triggered by a shot from a British soldier on Lexington Green, but the conflict is actually set into motion five years earlier 
when Liberty Boy Christopher Sider becomes the first American martyr to die for the cause of freedom. There's nothing I can do. Samuel Adams made this into a huge public spectacle, and there was a great deal of anger in Boston. They stage an incredibly elaborate funeral with a bedecked coffin that gains mourners as it passes through town. Among the more than 2,000 Bostonians who attend the funeral is John Adams. Here he is from his diary. Mine eyes have never seen such a funeral. This shows that there are many more lives to be spent if wanted in service to their country. This shows, too, that the faction is not yet expiring and that the ardor of the people is not to be quelled by the slaughter of one child. It's in full view, this outpouring of sentiment over the loss of one individual who symbolizes the promise of what many people think should be an independent nation. This boy's death becomes propaganda for Samuel Adams and the Sons of Liberty. And this is like a match to light the fuse that will explode into the American Revolution. In the days that follow the funeral, tension in Boston reaches a climax. On the frigid, moonlit evening of March 5, 1770, less than two weeks after Sider's burial, an angry, boisterous, and mostly intoxicated citizen mob roamed through the snow-covered, cobbled streets, hurling insults and threats at British soldiers. Two Bostonians break into two meeting houses and begin ringing the church bells, the alarm for fire, and almost at once, crowds come pouring into the streets. The city is alive with danger. By 8 o'clock, two British soldiers are attacked and beaten. Then, a large mob of colonists, as many as 200 strong and armed with sticks and clubs, gather in front of the Custom House on King Street, guarded by a lone British sentry. The time is shortly after nine. Words are exchanged, and the sentry strikes a Bostonian with the butt of his musket, knocking him to the ground. The British want to demonstrate that we hold the power, and you guys better do what we tell you to do. Captain Preston leads out the guard. They form around the front of the customs house. And at that point, the situation escalates, and a mob starts to grow. British Captain Thomas Preston dispatches seven men to the custom house to, as he says, protect the sentry and the king's money. The more force the British bring to bear, the more radical the situation gets. The mob launches oyster shells and rocks packed in snowballs at the soldiers and dare them to shoot, yelling, fire, fire. The soldiers with muskets drawn and fixed bayonets are in a state of panic when suddenly a British private receives a severe blow to the head with a club and falls to the ground, causing his musket to discharge. In the melee, the soldiers open fire. Just days after Christopher Sider is buried, five more American colonists join him as martyrs in the struggle for freedom. What will be known as the Boston Massacre will be the rallying cry for colonists to fight for the unalienable rights we cherish today. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We will all regret this day. And when we come back, we'll continue with the final segment of this remarkable story, and we're picking the Boston Massacre trial and honing in on this one particular point 
in John Adams' life because it reveals so much about his nature, about his character, and what he really believed in. In the end, the deep principles that helped him and so many like him formulate the founding principles of our country. Hard ones to live by at the time, though. When we continue, the life of John Adams, the Boston Massacre trial, and the story of our nation's founding here on Our American Story. continue with the story of John Adams. Just days after Liberty Boy Christopher Sider is buried, five more American colonists join him as martyrs in the struggle for freedom. What will be known as the Boston Massacre will be the rallying cry for colonists to fight for the unalienable rights we cherish today, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Here's Greg Hengler. We will all regret this day. The Boston Massacre becomes a huge propaganda effort for Samuel Adams and the Sons of Liberty. You've got an immediately famous engraving by Paul Revere. It is one of the most inaccurate pieces of propaganda ever produced by an American press. Almost nothing in it is correct. This is treason! This is an early instance in the colonies of the power of what we now call media to shape the public opinion. Paul Revere's sensationalized engraving is considered one of the most effective pieces of propaganda in American history showing an orderly line of redcoats firing in unison into an unprovoked and unarmed crowd of patriots with blood spurting out of their bodies. Boston newspapers are quick to print and distribute Revere's version. John Adams is a short, chubby, and very pious fifth-generation descendant of Puritans who settled in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1632. After 12 years of practicing law, the 34-year-old Adams is working in his office when a prosperous merchant named James Forrest knocks on his door the day after the massacre. Mr. Adams, my name is Forrest. What happened to you? With tears streaming in his eyes, as Adam writes years later, the loyalist desperately asks Adams to defend Captain Preston and his men against the murder charges. Not even a single loyalist would take the case. No one else would plead his case. As Boston's most respected attorneys and political leaders, it would appear inconceivable that he would risk his reputation and his own safety, as well as the safety of his pregnant wife, Abigail, and their young son and future sixth president of the United States, John Quincy Adams, by agreeing to defend British men who were considered cold-blooded killers of American patriots. It will be John Adams' first murder trial. On the surface, it would appear that the distinction between the Adams cousins is made clearer when John takes the case to defend British soldiers. But behind the scenes, Samuel Adams' belief in the rights of man are deeper than his in-the-open, rough-and-tumble political tactics. 
John Adams was not eager to take the task. But Samuel persuaded his cousin on the basis of justice that these men deserved the best defense. That was an argument that could always sway John Adams. The trial in front of a packed courtroom begins on October 24th at Boston's new courthouse on Queen Street. John Adams draws upon his personal mistrust of mobs to construct a masterful defense of the British soldiers. Here's Kirk Ellis and John Adams from his autobiography and from the trial. He develops a defense that is based on the fact that this was a mob that was created and a situation of escalating violence was building. The part I took in defense of Captain Preston and the soldiers was the most exhausting and fatiguing cause I ever tried for hazarding my popularity and for incurring suspicions and prejudices which will never be forgotten as long as the history of this period is read. John Adams' ace in the hole trial is a deathbed confession from Patrick Carr. And what was it he said? He said he fired to defend himself. To defend himself! The doctor's testimony of Patrick Carr recounting a dying man's last words would be considered inadmissible, hearsay. But puritanical thinking gives John Adams an advantage. Justice Peter Oliver and the jury accept the deathbed testimony as irrefutable since it is believed that no one would dare lie so close before stepping into eternity to face God's final judgment. In instructing the jury, Justice Oliver addresses the complexities of the case when he tells them, If upon the whole ye are in any reasonable doubt of their guilt, ye must then declare them innocent. It marks the first known time a judge has used the phrase reasonable doubt in an American courtroom. Adams' defending argument to the jury includes this statement that has echoed throughout American courtrooms for longer than two centuries. Facts are stubborn things. See, whatever our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictums of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. We, the jury... The trial of Captain Preston lasts six days, and that of his troops lasts nine. Not guilty. These will be the first criminal trials in the colony's history to extend more than a single day. Not guilty. Adam's compelling defense wins an acquittal for six of the soldiers and two are found guilty of manslaughter, for which they are branded with an M for murder on their thumbs. This session adjourned. It is not only the soldiers Adams defends, but the law itself, which must remain free from man's politics, passions, and ever-shifting beliefs. Far from ruining his career, Bostonians realize that John Adams has won a victory for the colonies. He has shown England that colonists understand what justice means. The trial solidifies John Adams as the most respected and gifted legal mind in Boston, perhaps all of the colonies. For his part, Adams remembers the case with pride as one of the best pieces of service I ever rendered. 
one of the most, most gallant, gallant, manly, and disinterested actions of my whole life, and one of the best pieces of service I ever rendered my country. But to put that brilliant mind to use towards American independence, Sam Adams and his Sons of Liberty must first convince him to join them in open rebellion. Because when their struggle turns to war, they will need John Adams to persuade a people to defy their king and define the ideals of freedom and liberty upon which America will be built. Let's end this story with the man who started it. Here again is historian and John Adams biographer, David McCullough. I like to give credit where credit's due. In many cases, long overdue. I felt that way with John Adams. You remember the great scene in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid when the posse is chasing them? And they're, the posse is not only keeping up with them, they're starting to gain a little bit. And one of them says to the other, who are those guys? And then they look again and they're getting closer and they're riding as well or better than Butch and Sundance are. And the other one said, who, who are those guys? And then, who are those guys? Well, that's the way I feel very often. Who were those founding fathers? And the more you know them, the better you know them, the more you realize how extraordinary what they did is because they were so human. And they had flaws and failings and had moments of gloom and despair, just like all of us. And yet they kept going. I know that it, it lifts us in spirit. It lifts us in our love of appreciation of those to whom we owe so much, but it also lifts us in an outlook on life that, for lack of, a, of another word, I would call optimistic. Now, it's not fashionable intellectually to be an optimist, but I am, because I've seen in my work again and again and again, it works out. They do it. They get there. And if there's a problem, if there's an over, overwhelming calamity, the nation's whole security and future is at stake, we've come through it. And so when people start saying, oh, it's a oh, country's going to hell, well, sure, it always has been. And, and, uh, and, and we're doing just fine. And then when people say, well, the taxes are too high and the cost of this and these damn politicians, I say, would you rather live somewhere else? Oh, no, 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 of course not. <laughs> Aren't we lucky? Aren't we really lucky to live in this country? And isn't it wonderful sometimes to be reminded that we are a good people and we've had great people bring us to where we are? Yes, there were terrible, rotten people, of course. And there, was, there were scoundrels and scamps and crooks and murderers. But there always have been, always will be. And just don't ever let us get so down about what might be happening at the moment in the way of less than admirable human beings. But remember how many good people there are and how much progress is being made in our own time beneficial to a better life. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg, and it's always a pleasure to hear from David McCullough. And this story, well, it tells you everything about John Adams, that one moment in your life when you're up against everybody else, when you're alone, and it's you and your principles and how you act upon them, well, it determines who you are, and it determined who John Adams was, no doubt. Great to hear this story and remind us of the founders of this great country, 
And it always reminds us of Hillsdale College as well. And they do all of our This Day in Histories. And whenever we do a history segment, we always like to plug their great work. Go to hillsdale.edu and listen to their Constitution 101 class. Watch it. Have the whole family watch it, too. It's terrific. And we can't hear the story enough about the founding of our country. John Adams' story, the Boston Massacre, the Boston Massacre Trial, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show, from sports to the arts, from history to, well, just about any story you send us. And we love producing those stories and sending them back to you, putting them on the airwaves, because the American people live extraordinary lives, and you have extraordinary stories to tell. And by the way, we also love telling stories about our great American artists, and periodically, we do readings from some of the great American literary works. We've had Vincent Price reading The Raven, a remarkable reading from The Old Man in the Sea, Hemingway's great novel, or almost long, short story. Thomas Paine's Common Sense, the reading for that is terrific, and when you hear it, you're going to be thinking, my goodness, we're arguing about the same things we did almost two and a half centuries ago. And my favorite, The Great Gatsby, one of my favorite American novels, and we have a dramatic reading from the end of that, and you can go to ouramericannetwork.org and search for any of those, and they're terrific and they're beautiful to listen to. Up next, from Boston, is a man who discovered a love for poetry as an adult, and, well, you wouldn't think that the job that he has would be conducive to a guy who, well, really has a taste for poetry. Let's take a listen to this story from a member of our audience in the Boston area. My name's John Doherty. I'm from Brenton, Massachusetts, 34 years old, and I'm a construction worker for the Boston Gas Company. We do outside construction work, providing natural gas for residents or businesses. So uh, a lot of um, digging, laying pipelines, tapping into gas mains, all outdoor work. The satisfying thing about the job is you're working with a dangerous element, really. So it's, it's important to be exact in everything you do. You certainly don't want to leave any kind of a gas leak behind. So, um, you know, you have to be careful. You have to pay attention. Poetry was, was definitely intimidating initially. Uh, it just looked like a lot of words and that were out of order and out of place and uh, did not belong together. And that's, that's the challenge of it. It just takes a lot of reading and rereading to grasp it. But once you do, once you come to understand it, you've achieved something. So now you feel good. Song of Myself is a poem that 
I probably had a lot of difficulty understanding the first time. And there were certain lines that caught me and that I liked. And when I got to the very end of this very long poem, um, the last half dozen lines, uh, so encouraging. He, in those last few lines, Whitman tells you what you're thinking. He says that you probably didn't understand what you just read, but stay with it and you will and you'll love it. And so it felt like it was speaking directly to me when I first read it. And I keep those lines in mind no matter what I read now. The connection I feel with Walt Whitman's poem, Song of Myself, is not due to the fact that he talks about laborers, physical labor working outside and like the common working American. Uh, that's a nice touch in it, of course, but I enjoyed it for its, its upliftingness, its, its ability to inspire me and, and see things in life and in everyday existence that I hadn't noticed before, that I might have taken it for granted before. Song of Myself by Walt Whitman. There is that in me. I do not know what it is, but I know it is in me. Wrenched and sweaty, calm and cool, then my body becomes. I sleep, I sleep long. I do not know it, it is without name. It is a word unsaid. It is not in any dictionary, utterance, symbol. Something it swings on more than the earth I swing on. To it, the creation is the friend whose embracing awakes me. Perhaps I might tell more. Outlines. I plead for my brothers and sisters. Do you see, O oh my brothers and sisters? It is not chaos or death. It is form, union, plan. It is eternal life. It is happiness. The spotted hawk swoops by and accuses me. He complains of my gab and my loitering. I too am not a bit tamed. I too am untranslatable. I sound my barbaric yop over the roofs of the world. The last scud of day holds back for me. It flings my likeness after the rest, and true as any on the shadowed wilds. It coaxes me to the vapor and the dusk. I depart as air. I shake my white locks at the runaway sun. I effuse my flesh in eddies and drift it in lacy jags. I bequeath myself to the dirt to grow from the grass I love. If you want me again, look for me under your boot soles. You will hardly know who I am or what I mean, but I shall be good health to you nevertheless and filter and fire your blood. Failing to fetch me at first, keep encouraged. Missing me one place, search another. I stop somewhere waiting for you. And thank you to John Doherty, a construction worker from Braintree, Massachusetts. And that is the thing about art, folks. It hits us all. It hits our humanity, no matter what our work, no matter what our income, no matter our race and ethnicity or geography. And that's the thing about Walt Whitman's work. And again, thank you to John Doherty, and that's Braintree, Massachusetts, a construction worker who loves the structure 
and the poetry and the meaning and loves that it uplifts him. And that's what we try to do here on this show every day. People want more beautiful things in their life, and that's what we aim to do here. This is Lee Habib, John Doherty's story, his love affair with poetry, and Walt Whitman here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and we recently came across an article in Popular Mechanics that caught our attention. It's called Burning Out, What Really Happens Inside a Crematorium? And it was by Karen Chelsler, a freelance writer in New Jersey who writes about science, politics, and parenting. She graciously agreed to record a portion of this piece for us, and as dark as the subject may seem, it's a fascinating look into a part of life that is seldom seen. Rose Hill Cemetery in Linden, New Jersey, is awash in small-town trappings. Tree-lined roads, rolling lawns, and street signs at every corner. On this Wednesday midsummer morning, the familiar routine of loss plays out across the acres. A yellow taxi waits at the end of a row of graves for someone paying their respects. Men and women clad in church clothes line up their cars along the curb and make their way to a grave site. A backhoe digs out some earth, another spot for another resident. This is the textbook way we treat our dead. Someone passes, they're buried, a headstone marks their place out among the rows in the burrow of the departed. But today I'm bound for a different part of the cemetery, one fewer people see though that fact is rapidly changing. This place is called the Columbarium, and at first, the very existence of this vast chamber full of urns can come as a surprise. In the movie version of Life and Death, a cremated person's remains sit up on the shelf at home, or friends scatter their ashes in the wind over a sacred locale. In the real world, many cremated people stay in the cemetery, just like their buried counterparts. Rose-colored carpeting covers the floors here. The whir of a vacuum cleaner punctures the silence. Cubby holes, or niches, line the walls, and the varying sizes and styles of urns within them marks the passing of the eras. Older urns are more ornate. One is topped by an eternal flame, while another is shaped like a Bible. One inscribed Henrietta Lieber, 1866 to 1933, is shaped like an acorn. Next to it leans a photo of Henrietta who's standing behind a chair in a sleeveless white dress and long pearls, 
her hair fashioned in a bob like a flapper. More contemporary urns are boxier and cleaner in style. They're also larger and not for vanity's sake. The cremation process recovers a lot more of the human body than it used to. Some families have packed their niche with flowers, family photos, or pictures of Jesus. Others skipped the niche entirely and entombed the cremated remains behind a marble plaque. It is a curious thing, as if the body was broken down into its smallest organic parts, then surrounded with stone to protect them. We are seeing a fundamental shift in how we approach death and what comes after. Compared to just a few decades ago, vastly more Americans are foregoing the old-fashioned burial and turning to the alternative of cremation. This is what brought me here to Rose Hill, and now my tour with Jim Kozlowski, president of the Rose Hill and Rosedale Cemetery, is about to go deeper into his world to see how cemeteries are dealing with America's after-death revolution. As I follow him deeper into the columbarium, we pass through the Rose Room. Urns here are not hidden in niches behind glass, but instead are on display in the open air. I prefer it this way. The glass cases remind me of the razors at the drugstore, the ones you can only access by notifying a salesperson with a key. Deeper still, at the very rear of the room, lies a set of stained glass doors. Kozlowski slides them open to reveal a hidden set of spy movie doors, these made of metal. They are solid for a reason. Behind them lies the crematorium itself. The doors open and we stroll onto what looks like the floor of a factory, but one dedicated to a certain kind of deconstruction. Back in 1980, less than 5% of Americans were cremated when they died. That figure now stands at about 50%, according to the National Cremation Association of North America. Changing cultural and religious standards are at play here, for sure. But if you want to see one event that accelerated the change, look no further than the Great Recession. We saw a big uptick in cremation when there was an economic downturn in 2008, when people were losing their jobs. Cremation is a less expensive alternative, Kozlowski says. Less expensive alternative may be putting it lightly. Rose Hill charges just $180 to cremate a body, although the urn, flowers, and service are extra. A grave, by contrast, can cost $2,500, plus an additional $1,500 to open the ground with a backhoe. Rose Hill, located about a half hour from Manhattan, now cremates about 25 bodies per day and has been expanding its facility to meet the growing demand. It already had three cremation machines but bought an additional unit in 2013 another in 2016, and expects to have a sixth up and running by the end of the year. Of course, burning the dead isn't a new concept. It was around long, long before the recession forced Americans to start pinching their pennies. Cremation began in the Stone Age, and it was common, though not universal, in ancient Greece and Rome. In certain religions, such as Hinduism and Jainism, cremation was not only permitted, but preferred. The rise of Christianity put the brakes on the practice in the West. 
as early as 330 AD, around the time that Emperor Constantine adopted Christianity as the Roman Empire's official religion, Rome outlawed cremation as a pagan practice. The theological reason for the ban was related to the resurrection. It was good to keep the body whole or in one place. Through the Reformation, the Catholic Church frowned on or prohibited cremation, though it was used for punishment and hygiene reasons. Jewish law also banned the practice. By the 5th century, cremation had all but disappeared from Europe. The practice saw a resurgence in Europe in the 1870s, mostly because of public health concerns about curbing the spread of disease. The first modern crematory was built in the U.S. in 1876. A second came eight years later. By 1900, there were 20. The practice got another boost in 1963 when the Catholic Church reversed its opinion on cremation during the Vatican II reforms and said cremation was permitted, though ash scattering was not. Today, there are more than 2,100 crematories around the United States, and the cremation resurgence isn't just about cost. There are other factors, including fewer religious prohibitions on the practice and changing consumer preferences, such as the desire for simpler, less ritualized funerals. Our increasingly mobile way of life plays a part too, says Robert Biggins of Magoon Biggins Funeral Home in Rockland, Massachusetts. People aren't growing up in Mayberry RFD and staying their whole lives. We're much more mobile. Generation X and Millennials, they stay in a job on average five to seven years. Americans don't want to be sedentary in death either. Simply put, cremation has become socially acceptable. Acceptance varies by state and ethnicity, according to a report by the National Funeral Directors Association. But in places like California, Oregon, and South Florida, 60 to 80% of the dead are now cremated, while the number is much lower in the Bible Belt and among certain cultures, including Catholics and African Americans. And there's one more force pushing cremation as an alternative. Cemeteries are running out of space, Kozlovsky says. He estimates Rose Hill has only 15 years before it's out of room. It's no wonder, then, that a lot of cemeteries have applied to build crematoriums, though there's often opposition, particularly if they're in a residential area. There's a stigma, Kozlowski says. There's still a segment of society that sees cremations as gruesome or ghoulish, and they don't want it in their backyard. Kozlowski and I pass through the double doors. As we stand on the floor of the crematorium, a bell rings out. What's that for? I ask. That indicates that there's a hearse probably backing up to the door, he says. So when the guys are in here operating, if they're doing something and they hear the bell, they know someone is coming. And when we come back, we step into the inner sanctum of the crematorium itself, where the gruesome but necessary process of cremation is carried out, how it works, what happens, and more, here on Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to Karen Chesler and her piece at Popular Mechanics titled Burning Out, What Really Happens Inside a Crematorium. Here's Karen at Rose Hill Cemetery in Linden, New Jersey. The bodies arrive in caskets, occasionally made of wood, but more commonly cardboard. They remain in these containers during the entire stay. There are health reasons for this, such as protecting the technicians from infectious diseases. There are moral reasons. The family would want them in something, Kozlowski says. There are logistical reasons, too. It would be extremely difficult to load a set of human remains without a casket. Just think of a body and trying to put it into a cremation unit. The caskets go into the crematorium's walk-in cooler, which is lined with shelves of them. One casket has a label on it from Delta Airlines that says Human Remains, and under it, Delta Cares. Bodies typically remain a day or two in the cooler, because most states require a 24-hour waiting period between when someone dies and cremation can occur. When something is so final, you want to take a pause. Five large cremation units occupy the floor, each covered in diamond-plated aluminum, like you might see on a fire truck or a high-end toolbox. It's called a cremation unit, by the way, not an oven. And don't call the process incineration, even though it is. There are certain words you're not supposed to say in a crematorium. With ovens, you think of Auschwitz, and that definitely has negative connotations, so people shy away from that nomenclature, says Brian Gamage director of marketing at U.S. Cremation Equipment in Altamonte Springs, Florida. When a body is ready to be cremated, it is removed from cold storage and placed on a retractable table that looks like a gurney. It's then wheeled over to one of the machines. Cremation is the kind of business where an error would be catastrophic, unforgivable, and so Rose Hill actually uses two forms of ID to make sure the family gets back the right remains. A copy of the receipt is attached to the outside of the cremation unit, and a metal ID tag, similar to a dog tag, accompanies the deceased inside the unit. While the door can open about 30 to 35 inches wide, most operators open it only a foot or so, enough to accommodate the width of a body. Any more than that will let out too much heat, exposing the operator and the room to fiery temperatures. The body slides in, pushed with a tool, or by hand. There are rollers on the gurney and sometimes on the floor of the cremation unit, so the casket can slide with ease. A cremation unit has two chambers, the primary chamber where the body goes, and the secondary or after chamber where the gases generated are burned off. Cremated remains are typically bone fragments and casket ash. Remember, we're 75% water. The primary chamber has brick-lined walls and a floor and roof made of high-heat refractory concrete. A burner descends from the roof and heats the chamber to about 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit, enough to break down a body into gas and bone fragments. The resulting gases and particulates travel into the after chamber a 30-foot maze designed to retain the gases for about two seconds. The after chamber subjects the gases to a temperature of 1,700 degrees Fahrenheit 
to make sure the particles and odor are negligible before everything goes up the stack and out into the atmosphere. Gamage says you can think of the secondary chamber like a catalytic converter on an old car, which neutralizes the emissions of the exhaust system. Any solid will turn to gas if heated to the right point. That's essentially what happens to the body when the tissue is heated to the point where it's combustible and turns to gas, Gamage says. But just like in any combustion device, whether it's a car or a backyard grill, when you burn something, there's going to be emissions generated. The key is to design equipment that consumes most of the emissions so that they fall within the state environmental regulations. The particulates emitted must be less than 0.1 grains per dry standard cubic foot, according to environmental agencies in most states. Problems arise when gases build up in the secondary chamber and begin to overflow. That can happen if the machine isn't designed properly, or if the operator overloads the primary chamber, which can happen for surprising reasons. For example, putting an obese person in the unit at the wrong time of day. As macabre as it may sound, weight is something crematorium operators must worry about. The machine doesn't know the difference between a person who weighs 150 pounds and a person who weighs 400. It just does its job. The cremator's rule of thumb is that 100 pounds of human fat is the equivalent of 17 gallons of kerosene. If you have a body that weighs 400 pounds, at least 200 of it will be fat, and that will burn rapidly. If you put that person into a very hot machine, as the cremation unit tends to be at the end of the day when it's been running for hours, the chamber may emit smoke and odor out of the stack. It's just too much gas for the machine to handle, Gamage says. Most experienced operators will do those larger cases as the first cremation of the day, when the machine is colder. Inside the Rose Hill Crematorium, I'm staring at a computer monitor that reduces this ritual into raw data. The body inside is a male. It's the second case of the day. It's in a cardboard container weighing 201 to 350 pounds, and it has already been in there for an hour and 20 minutes. A diagram on the screen shows the machine's various chambers. Three little blue flames are illuminated under one of the chambers, indicating that hearth air is now being blown into the chamber to help cool it down. It's currently between 910 and 1150 degrees inside, but moments earlier the temperature had been 1600 to 1800 degrees. Although it takes about an hour and a half to cremate a body, though that varies depending on the person's weight and the type of casket they're in, the time-consuming nature limits the number of bodies each can cremate. During my visit, all of Rose Hill's machines were in various states of operation just to keep up with demand. Each needs to get five bodies done in eight hours. Rose Hill's cremation units run six days a week standing idle only on Sundays. For religious reasons, I asked Kozlovsky. No, he says. We just need a day off. And there you have it, burning out what really happens inside a crematorium. And thanks to Karen Chesler. Wait, one more time. Is it Chesler or Chesler? Chesler, right. Let me do that one more time.
for religious reasons? I asked Kozlovsky. No, he says. We just need a day off. And there you have it. And we promise to bring you every kind of story here on Our American Stories, and we do. And thanks to Karen Chesler. And this piece was originally in Popular Mechanics, burning out what really happens inside a crematorium. And by the way, my mom was cremated. She was a Catholic. And a lot of folks in the family were a little upset. And I think as these things happen, these conversations are happening. And a lot of folks were like, well, why are you doing this? Well, that's what my mom wanted. And it didn't matter what I wanted. It's what she wanted. And so we did it. And uh, she thought it was too expensive funerals. And she thought they were macabre. And that was her wish to me on, uh, on her final days. She said, please don't do that to me. I don't want everybody sitting around looking at me in a, in a casket. And so it was really simple what I needed to do for her and happy to do it. And her church allows it. And it's a cultural thing and it's a personal choice. And we just love the story. Uh, It's fascinating. Look at how Americans live and how we die. Karen Chesler's story here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and in this next story, we're going to take a look back at one of the best and weirdest stand-ups to ever hold a mic. And by the way, we've done a lot on comedians. We were just talking about it, and Carol Burnett, Lucille Ball, George Carlin, Gary Shandling, Robin Williams, Steve Martins was just terrific, real insights into the life of a stand-up. Joan Rivers, what a life. Johnny Carson, just terrific stuff there. And... My personal favorite, Don Rickles, whose act would be against the law today. And we did an hour on his life and what a life it was. And now, Mitch Hedberg. He was an old-fashioned one-line spitter like Henny Youngman and an observer of the foibles of everyday life like Jerry Seinfeld. But the simplicity of his format obscured the qualities of his work that made him a legend. Quote, every book is a children's book if the kid can read. It's just one good example of classic Hedberg writing. Mitch never tried to speak about issues as most comics do. Instead, he was telling jokes about, well, ducks. Here's Mitch's story. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm extremely proud to present Mitch Hedberg. Mitch Hedberg was one of the greatest comedians of all time. He might not be a household name like George Carlin or Louis C.K., but he'll always be remembered for his signature style and unconventional offbeat delivery. Yeah, I got got to write these jokes. So uh, I sit at the hotel at night, I think of something that's funny. Then I go get a pen and I write it down. Or if the pen's too far away, I have to convince myself that what I thought of ain't funny. (laughs) 
His comedy typically featured short, sometimes one-line jokes mixed with absurd elements and non-sequiturs. I've always wanted to have a suitcase handcuffed to my wrist. All right. My friend asked me if I wanted a frozen banana. I said no, but I want a regular banana later, so yeah. I'm out to dinner with a group of friends and someone offers to pay for the check. I immediately reach for my wallet because inside is a note that says, say thanks. I used to do drugs, I still do, but I used to too. Mitch displayed a visible delight in being on stage, and he embodied a warmth that would draw his audience into his world. I'm against picketing, but I don't know how to show it. He earned a cult following and the admiration of his fellow comics. I order the club sandwich all the time, and I'm not even a member, man. I don't know how I get away with it. I like my sandwiches with three pieces of bread. So do I. Well, let's form a club. Okay, but we need some more stipulations. Yes, we do. Instead of the cutting the sandwich once, let's cut it again. Hell yeah, four triangles. We'll position them into a circle. And in the middle, we will dump chips. Or potato salad. Cool, I can deal with that. Let me ask you a question. How you feel about frilly toothpicks? I'm for them. Well, this club is formed then. I like to take a toothpick and throw it in the forest and say, you're home. Born in St. Paul, Minnesota, Hedberg moved out when he turned 18 to pursue his dream of being a stand-up comic. You know, when it comes to racism, people say, I don't care if they're black, white, purple, or green. Oh, hold on now. Purple or green? You got to draw the line somewhere. To hell with purple people. <laughs> Unless they're suffocating. <laughs> then help them. He lived out of his car and honed his routine and built his reputation playing comedy clubs across the country throughout the 1990s. Here's fellow comedians Shard Hogan, Doug Stanhope, Dave Attell, and Chuck Savage. The unique thing about Mitch is that he didn't do a lot of uh, typical setup type you know, joke jokes. It was just so much different than anything anyone was doing or is doing today. Here was a guy standing on stage with his eyes closed, just kind of doing this, you know, uh, thoughts, basically, that were like hilarious and so out there. And as a comic, you kind of always know where the joke's going, like, you know, bah. with his stuff, it was always, it blew me away. A good comic says funny things, and a great comic says things funny. And that's what Mitch did. He said things funny. When someone tries to hand me out a flyer, it's kind of like they're saying, here, you throw this away. It's weird to hear that a guy who made his living performing in front of people was terrified of doing so. But Mitch Hedberg had severe stage fright. And so the prototypical Hedberg performance involved dark sunglasses, long hair draped over his eyes and set long staring contests with the floor. And finally, Mitch would bookend this list by completely closing his eyes to keep the crowd at an even safer distance. You know on TV, when they have a fishing show on TV, they catch the fish, but they let it go. They don't want to eat the fish, but they do want to make it late for something. 
Where were you? I got caught. <laughs> Liar, let me see the inside of your lip. Every comedian messes up a joke on occasion, but they usually ignore their flubs. Not Hedberg. He tended to ruminate on his failed jokes, criticizing them on stage at a level few comedians could ever get away with. Dogs are forever in the push-up position. That joke is dumb. I'm aware of that. Advil has a candy coating. It's delicious. Then it says right on the bottle, do not have more than two. Well, then do not put a candy coating around it. For I cannot help myself. Let me have ten Advil. Do you got a, I got a sweet tooth. <laughs> I think I screwed part of that joke up. I, I apologize about that. Deadspin likened it to him breaking the fourth wall. In an odd way, it made him even more endearing and relatable to his fans. I find that Duck's opinion of me is very much influenced over whether or not I have bread. You know that, Petra's farm bread, that stuff is fancy, man. It's wrapped twice. You open it, and it still ain't open. That's why I don't buy it. I don't need another step between me and toast. Hedberg's innovative onstage persona brought him to the doorstep of fame, and he soon earned top billing. At the 1998 Montreal Comedy Festival, Mitch wowed the crowd. I got a king-sized bed. I don't know any kings, but if one came over, I guess he'd be comfortable. <laughs> oh, you're a king, you say. Well, you won't believe what I have in store for you. It's to your exact specifications. When I was a boy, I laid in my twin-sized bed and wondered where my brother was. All right. I had a cold sore. I put some Carmex on it. Carmex is supposed to heal cold sores. I don't know if it does, but it will make them shiny and more noticeable. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Please welcome Mitch Hedberg. Mitch! As an encore, Mitch booked the ultimate stand-up gig, a spot on The Late Show with David Letterman. I got a V-neck shirt on, man. I like V-necks, you know? And I hate turtlenecks, man. A turtleneck is like being strangled by a really weak guy. <laughs> All day. <laughs> this, is, this is so unusual to hear so much applause. I think you're trying to trick me and make me think I'm done. Letterman wanted him back right away. A rare request for stand-up comics. By the end of 1998, Mitch landed a half-million-dollar TV deal with Fox and starred in his own special for Comedy Central. He was even dubbed the next Seinfeld by Time magazine. This shirt is dry clean only, which means it's dirty. By the early 2000s, Mitch was performing 300 shows a year and sometimes three in a night. Hedberg never passed on a job even at the peak of his fame because he had been rejected so many times in his career that he felt if he didn't say yes he might not be given the opportunity to perform again. I went to a, 
I went to a pizzeria, I ordered a slice of pizza. The dude gave me the smallest slice possible. If the pizza was a pie chart for what people would do if they found a million dollars, this dude gave me the donate to charity slice. <laughs> I would like to exchange this for the keep it. Ultimately, Mitch's drive to succeed and his drug use, most notably heroin, took him over the edge. This morning, we've learned a popular comic from St. Paul has passed away. Mitch Hedberg died in a hotel room in New Jersey on Wednesday. Hedberg died of a massive heart attack caused by drug abuse on March 29th, 2005. Mitch was not the next Seinfeld, but he never needed to be. He was Mitch Hedberg. As a comedian, you have to start the show strong and you have to end the show strong. Those are the two key elements. You can't be like pancakes, all exciting at first, but then by the end, you're sick of them. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. <laughs>